Why participate in a fan community? What do you get out of it? I mean, it's more fun than doing it by yourself. Sort of like sex. I've been in some very, very small fandoms, either because they were obscure in the first place or because I was late to the party, as very commonly happens. Or both. Both is great. And I would still compose fic, whether there was anybody to read it or not. But, that said, it's easier to sustain fanish engagement when there are other people discussing the camp. I don't have loads of fandom friends, simply because the effort required to keep up the friendship would be more than I can spare while working nine hours a day, six days a week. But um, I do exchange messages with the few I have, and it's it's just so pleasant to, to share your enthusiasms with others. Of course, what's really fun is you can get each other into other canons which feature your shared interests. Sort of like sort of crack dealing. You know, we started you on, I don't know, Ecstasy. Here's MDMA. It does kind of the same thing. You might like it. So indeed, present fan communities, it's more fun than doing it by yourself, and the momentum, I think, gets you to enjoy it more. Welcome to Geek Out with Angie Wheeler Sutton, an ongoing discussion on geeky topics. Hello, fellow geeks. Apologies for the delay on this. I came down with a massive summer cold that left me with little energy to do much else outside of work. On the plus side, the work stress I've been referencing in past interviews should be mostly over, so yay on that! If you didn't notice, I've started producing two episodes a month. One scheduled for the beginning of the month, and one intended for the 15th. This one is obviously a little late, but I do have an episode ready to edit for July 1st. In this episode, I continue my series where I interview women in the geek community about what their experiences were like and their history as a fangirl. Just a heads up that the F-bomb has dropped twice in this podcast, once in the interview and once in my Angie Geek Us Out segment. Cerbericia is one of the women I had originally interviewed back in 2014 when I was visiting London. I had been working on an article on fanfiction for the company I was interning at, and I'd reached out to Tumblr to find people outside of my fandom areas to quote. Since she was based in the UK... Oxford, to be precise, I asked if she would be interested in a further interview. Obviously, time has passed since that interview, and so when I decided to get back to doing these, we agreed to redo it. We had a great discussion about what it means to be a geek, how she fangirls, and the future of geek culture. Let's start with the basics of your name and what you do for a living. I'm Grace, uh, though I go by the username Cerberusia in geeky spaces, and I'm a teacher of classics. And if I remember right, how I got in touch with you was when I was uh, interning at Culture Whisper in London. I was looking mm. for people to respond to an article I was writing for them about fan fiction. It was right after the One Direction fanfic had gotten, <laughs> uh, had spread like wildfire. But you were one of the people that responded. Am I remembering right? I think so, yes. I was just trying to remember that the, early this morning, actually. I think. <laughs> Definitely remember. So you obviously don't have an American accent. So where are you from? As you can guess, I'm, I'm obviously from the UK. Specifically, I'm from Yorkshire, which I think a lot of Americans don't know exists. Um, <laughs> there's a wonderful bit in An American Werewolf in London, where he's, I believe he's bitten in the Yorkshire Dales by a werewolf, and they rush him to hospital in London, which is 200 miles away down the M1. But anyway, I'm from, and indeed still live, in a very nice bit of rural Yorkshire. Have you lived there all your life? Almost, okay. almost. Did you move um, there? I've lived here almost all my life. I was brought up about an hour away. And then, of course, uh, when we met, I was at university down in Oxford. I was four years there, my brush with the big city. This is a joke, Oxford is not a big city <laughs> at all. And I 
left there for a few hot seconds, thought I was going to have to move to London and was got very worried. But no, no, I moved back um, to Yorkshire to an even more rural part of Yorkshire than I had originally been from. If it makes you feel better, I grew up in a fairly rural area mm. of, of Missouri, uh, which mm. is in the middle of the United States, if you're not familiar with oh, yes. uh, how the United States is set up. <laughs> I was um, going to be unkind and say, isn't that one of the flyover states, as they call yes. them? Yes, yes, it is. In terms of your family situation, do you have a significant other or do you still live with your parents? Do you have siblings? That kind of stuff. I am an only child, um, which is probably for the best. Um <laughs> You know that in some species, the parents produce a litter and then sort of the stronger of the litter eventually sort of overpower the weaker ones and the weaker ones kind of die off. I always wonder <laughs> that might, that kind of might have happened if I'd had siblings. No, um, I, I'm an only one, fortunately. Spoiled only child with just with my parents. I live half the year at work and I live half the year with my parents, which works out quite nicely. Just at the point where we get sick of each other, I go off to work and just at the point where I can't bear living at work any longer, I return to my parents. That sounds like a great situation. <laughs> and then since this is one of the geek girl interviews, I always ask for age. You don't have to give me a specific. You can give me a range if you're uncomfortable with a specific number. It's fine. I'm 25. And then your education level, you mentioned that when we met you were at university. So I have an MA uh, from Oxford and I've also done the PGCE which is the Postgraduate Certificate in Education which is it's the um, UK teacher training qualification. Anything uh, more about yourself in terms of general stats like you know if we were creating your character sheet in Dungeons and Dragons <laughs> anything else that you feel we, sh we need to uh, have on the table? <laughs> uh -huh. I'm very small so that's probably some kind of strength penalty. Um, <laughs> I went to Oxford so that's probably an probably an, an intelligence buff. Other than that, I suppose it's not terribly exciting. I've not lived anywhere abroad. I've not done anything terribly exciting like that. I'm musical. Other than that, not, espe not especially, except that I'm a classicist. Okay, well, um, the first question that I've been asking all my, my geek girls is, how do you specifically define what a geek is? Which is a very interesting question. Normally I don't, which um, solves the problem, but, <laughs> uh, but I think the defining feature of geekiness is enthusiasm or extensive expertise about a subject. I looked it up actually and apparently it just used to mean just non-mainstream which obviously isn't entirely true anymore but there's still uh, some of the activities that we typically think of as I typically think of as geeky do have the association. Some of the, the geeky teenage boys I know are all very into tabletop role-playing and they're very very into World of Warcraft for instance which is mm -hmm. just non-mainstream enough to be considered geeky but just mainstream enough for it to have shops in major towns. I think that in order to be geeky about something, your enthusiasm for it has to be beyond the norm. Um, for instance, my mother, of course, loves sci-fi. She introduced me to it as a little girl, but she doesn't read around the subject. She doesn't get passionate about it in the way that I would say is geeky. She just likes sci-fi. It's not, you know, we're not conventional or anything like that. As opposed to my father's obsession with trains, for instance. And by the way, what is it with dads and trains? <laughs> is this just is it just a UK thing does it extend over the world because all the dads I know are really weirdly into trains it's like it comes to some kind of automatic benefit conferred upon successful reproduction um, <laughs> just to be weird they're all very, very into trains anyway Pa's interest in trains has this not this sort of interest in a knowledge of minutiae and years and makes and your know, engines and that definitely strikes me as geeky um, so I suppose, what is a geek? Someone who is into something, not necessarily non-mainstream, non with 
unusual degree of enthusiasm, verging on obsession. Okay. Um, well, you talked about your mom introducing you to, to science fiction when you were very, very young. How long would you say you've identified as a geek? Ooh. Uh, and maybe a side project of kind of, ex- and tell me your origin story of the first time you were like, <laughs> I knew I was a geek. <laughs> <laughs> I came out as a geek. Yeah. You were bitten by a geek radioactive <laughs> bug. <laughs> Ooh, that's an interesting question because... I've certainly been what I've defined as geeky from very early on, but wouldn't have used the word for until I was in my teens. So I created my life journal in, I had to check this, 2005, September 2005, which makes it going on 14 years now that I've been yeah. officially involved. <laughs> I know for those of you who are any good at mental maths, you may have realised that this makes me 11 at the time. I was. So I was in year seven, which for the Americans is sixth grade. But I was reading fic on the internet almost as soon as I was given my first computer, which is when I was eight or nine. My parents were early adopters. And the first fic I ever wrote was when I was six. And we were assigned a creative writing task in primary school. I remember this. I was in year one. And I wrote in my notebook three pages of Welkin Weasel's fanfic about Mork and Scurf, uh, my favourite characters. Welkin Weasel's is kind of there. It's sort of in the Redwall genre of anthropomorphic animals. Frankly, with how much I loved Welcome Weasels and Redwall, it is amazing that I did not become a furry. (laughs) But even before that, I loved reading as soon as I was fluent. And while I was reading, I used to go off in daydreams, still do this, I used to go off in daydreams about the story and how, or what might happen next, or how I would have it happen next. I just like stop in the middle of a page and kind of drift off and imagine. So essentially, I was writing fanfic in my head. So clearly the impulse must have started young. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think I'd have outly said... I am a geek um, until I was probably in my mid-teens um, at which point I A knew what a geek was and B knew my interests were definitely geeky specifically but I've been a geek for more or less since birth <laughs> well and uh, this kind of leads into the next question you mentioned the Welcome Weasels do you have a specific area of geekiness is there one specific fandom or do you kind of cross-pollinate <laughs> <laughs> I do describe myself as a fanish butterfly, actually, so cross-pollination is perfect. Um, (laughs) Well, obviously I'm fanish, specifically, so I read and write fanfic, I look at fan art, I draw it but I can't draw, watch fan vids, similarly I would read but I can't vid, I read meta sometimes, and I discuss my favourite canons in those terms. I started out in Gundam Wing fandom, hadn't watched any of the series or anything, I was introduced to it through the fic, and I very quickly discovered Harry Potter fandom and got to that. I've seen that for ages, ages and ages. But I like to hop around, since then I've been through loads and loads. I often have one or two main fandoms and a couple kind of on the back burner. I never really leave a fandom though. I think the only one I've properly left, Glee maybe, because the show got so, got, got too ridiculous. Um, I mean, it was ridiculous start and then it got even more ridiculous in the end I just gave up. Um, <laughs> but generally I, don't, I rarely actually leave a canon entirely. It just gets shunted to the back, shunted to the bottom of the pile, and I might come back to it a few years later. Generally my fandoms are books anime and occasionally tv series so i was into team wolf for quite a while until again i after series three i'm, I'm afraid i gave up currently i'm into percy jackson Ooh. which is what i think the americans call middle grade kids books based on classical mythology i had to read them because my students kept making re- references to them and I, I knew the harry potter references they made but i didn't know the percy jackson ones and eventually i said oh, for god's sake i'm gonna have to read these damn things um, <laughs> and there are five books in the first series and i had a long weekend half from, from friday afternoon till end of Sunday and I read all five of them in that time <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's a, like crack that's only right as well as anyway also 
I've realised my sense of humour is probably that of an 11 year old boy because I found absolutely hilarious anyway <laughs> that's my main fan having fun in Percy Jackson but I'm also currently very into Dororo which is in the current 2009 anime season very fun and Final Fantasy 15 um, a video game I've got into video games now it's very exciting for many years I didn't on the grounds that I have no reflexes and I once played Wacky Races which is sort of like Mario Kart with some friends and I was so abominably bad at it that my friend had to take the controller off me to finish the course <laughs> for me because I had got lost I couldn't genuinely couldn't find where the racetrack was that was kind of my level of gaming but I, as an adult I'm picking up new things by gaming well with regards to Percy Jackson isn't there a movie or two there is there is there's um I've seen the first one not the second the first it's not it's not bad but um of course in the books Percy is 11 going on 12 at the start and the actor in the films is quite a lot older he must be I think it's meant to be, well, he couldn't pass for anything less than his mid-teens, um, mm-hmm. which I think changes the feeling of it quite a bit. I mean, really most smart man. That may have been due to child labor laws, too. Yeah, that pro- yeah, it probably does also affect things, doesn't it? There's probably a good reason for it. Um, <laughs> I mean, you know, the film is fine, but they like the narration of the books, and the real charm point of the books for me is Percy's narration. They're all first person. Like, he's just so droll about it, very sarcastic about everything. Cheers me up immensely. And then I have to ask, isn't it a cultural responsibility to you a British person to be into <laughs> Doctor Who and Sherlock? <laughs> Don't I know it. I'm only into Sherlock of those. Weirdly, I never managed Doctor Who. I didn't watch it as a child, which is surprising because my mother did. You'd think my mother would introduce me. But of course, my mother thinks that Doctor Who is fine, but has gone downhill since it stopped being in black and white. Um, <laughs> you think I'm kidding. I'm not kidding. Though she has enjoyed some of the episodes she's watched. I did, interestingly, have to watch an episode of Doctor Who once for homework when I was mm-hmm. in year eight, it would have been, which is ninth no, seventh grade for Americans. Mm-hmm. There was an episode which features the eruption of Vesuvius and destruction of Pompeii. And it features um, a family. Well, the head of the house is Caecilius and his wife, Metella, and his son, Quintus. And the reason this is significant is that the textbooks that I would probably say probably most children in the UK learn their Latin out of, it's called the Cambridge Latin Course, and it's set in Pompeii, just before the eruption. The last stage of the book is, is the eruption. And in this, we follow a real family who really did exist. We have that. We have their house. We have some details about them, headed up by a gentleman called Lucius Caecilius Eucundus, who was a banker who really existed. So this was our homework to this is, and this is what the whole course was based on the introductory course to Latin. So I, I think our teacher might have been a fan, and so she said, "Right, your homework is to watch Doctor Who episode about Caecilius," and so we did. And we are my Mother still affectionately remembers the jokes. Donna was the companion at the time. Mm-hmm. Well, where are we going to go shopping then? TK Maximus? Which is only funny if you know that TK Maxx is a kind of discount outlet in the, mm-hmm. in the UK. There's local humour there. But other than that, no, Doctor Who never really grabbed me. It always seemed, the bits I caught mainly seemed aimed at children younger than I was. Mm-hmm. Um, and it never, no, never really clicked. Sherlock, though, I did really like. It had pretensions... Beyond its stature, probably. Yes. But I don't care. I really, really enjoyed it. I was brought up on the Jeremy Brett Sherlock Holmes and indeed on the stories. Yay. I, I know. I love Jeremy Brett. Oh, he's marvellous. Best, best Holmes ever. And I was brought up on reading them as well. I mean, for many, many years, my comfort watching, if I was homesick, was to watch the Granada Jeremy Brett series. I, so as I am fulfilling my English duty by being into Sherlock, if not into Doctor Who, so I'm kind of I'm halfway there. I drink a lot of tea. 
You mentioned LiveJournal earlier. Uh, what geek communities do you participate in, either online or in real life? I'm assuming you're probably no longer on LiveJournal due to LiveJournal being <laughs> bought out by the Russians uh, a while back. But some people have stuck on. Uh, so... Uh, Pretty much all my geekiness is online, though. Um, the closest I've come to offline geekiness is meeting up with fandom friends once in a while, rarely though. And I've, I have attended a couple of cons down in London, but I, lo- I like I said before, I live in the middle of nowhere. I love it. I genuinely love it. I love living in a rural area. I don't like living in cities. And if I'd moved to London, I would, I'd pro- I would not have liked it very much at all. But it's quite inconvenient for conventions, which are usually held in London, or even better, all the way over across the Atlantic. I would love to go to um, a con called Escapade, for instance, which it looks like a mm-hmm. big fanish sleepover. It looks so fun. But it's never on a weekend I can do. I, do can't, I can't make the timings to get me to California and back in time for work. Can't do it. Though, when I was at university, I did work the Harry Potter Society Yule Ball. So every year, the Oxford University Harry Potter Society runs a Yule Ball at Town Hall, and I happen to be friends with a girl who is a member. And this is one of the interesting things where I suppose geeks of a feather flock together because she's fanish, but we actually met because I got Freshies flu in Freshies Week and she was the peer supporter who kept bringing me smoothies and checking that I was dead. <laughs> American, uh, Calif- Californian herself. Very nice. Oh, how are you feeling? Not very well. So um, that was, you know, introduction to friendship. <laughs> um, but um, I, at some point I mentioned that I could read tarot and runes. And she said, oh, you should email the ball committee. I'm sorry, I won't do the American accent, it's terrible. And I should offer my services in return for comp entry. And so I did. And for my time at Oxford, I did that. I would go to the Yule Ball in you know, very flowy skirts, read people's tarot, their runes. Um, I also had a friend who did palmistry, so we'd set up together. And then the other half of the, half of it, we'd enjoy the ball. It was loads of fun. So that was kind of offline fanishness. Uh, but otherwise, it's entirely online. I have some pupils who are clearly fanish. You know, they make references that... I recognise. But, you know, professional boundaries should be kept, so we sort of stick it to kind of nod and a wink. No, it does mean I have to listen to, like, 14-year-old boys telling me, Miss Sword Art Online is the best anime of the past ten years. And I just sort of stand there and just think, wash your mouth out, child. Honestly. <laughs> this is a bad opinion. Hi, I'm Victoria Male from the Your Biggest Fangirl podcast, and I'm geeking out with Angie Fiedler sutton And we are discussing everything about fangirling and being a fangirl. But while we do that, let's get back to the episode. You can find me on various social media at Angie F. Sutton. I also have a Patreon at that handle. For as little as $1 a month, you too can support Geek Out, get the audio files a little bit sooner than the rest of the world, and receive behind-the-scenes stories from all of my episodes. Don't forget to give me a review over on iTunes or Stitcher. The more reviews of this podcast, the easier other people are able to find it. Finally, Be sure to sign up for my monthly newsletter and see all the places you can now listen to this podcast over at my website, angiefsutton.com. And now, back to my interview with geek girl, Cerberesia. I was on LJ. Yep, I have indeed mostly given up on LJ because it's the assault of the Russians and everybody left. More importantly, really, everybody left. I could put up with it being sold to the Russians, but not not everybody leaving, nobody to talk to. Then I followed the migration to Tumblr. And of course, now we've had, what are we calling it, Nipplegate? (laughs) I'm I'm still on Tumblr. I'm still reasonably active, but less so than I was. I'm now spending a lot more time on Dreamwith, which is an LJ fork or clone, which I cross-posted LJ, but I never checked the damn thing. It's quite nice, actually. It's a pleasant return to something resembling old-school journaling culture. 
which I am very much enjoying. You know, I'm, I'm a classicist. We don't like too much change at once. So in your opinion, why participate in the fan community? What do you get out of it? I mean, it's more fun than doing it by yourself. Sort of like sex. <laughs> I've been in some very, very small fandoms, either because they were obscure in the first place or because I was late to the party, as very commonly happens. Or both. Both is great. And I would still compose fic whether there was anybody to read it or not. But, that said, it's easier to sustain fanish engagement when there are other people discussing the camp. I don't have loads of fandom friends, simply because the effort required to keep up the friendship would be more than I can spare while working nine hours a day, six days a week. But um, I do exchange messages with the few I have, and it's, it's just so pleasant to, to share your enthusiasms with others. Of course, what's really fun is you can get each other into, into other canons which feature your shared interests. Sort of like some crack dealing. You know, we started you on, I don't know, Ecstasy, here's MDMA. It does kind of the same thing. You might like it. And of course, uh, so that's why I'm now tearing through Dororo, as I mentioned earlier. That's on the recommendation of a fandom friend who said, I'm enjoying this. There's lots of this. There's lots of X, Y, and Z. And I went, X, Y, and Z? Oh my god, I love that. And surprise, surprise, I'm watching it and loving it. So indeed, fan communities, it's more fun than doing it by yourself. And the momentum, I think, gets you to enjoy it more. What would you say is the best part of being in the geek community or being a geek? Best part of being a geek specifically is you get to enjoy enjoy things sort of the normal I'm enjoying a book and I'm enjoying a TV show level. And then you know that you are going to think about it and think about it longer. And in my case, probably going to come up with fic ideas, talk about fic ideas with other people. And you can read and then go into and read any fanish discussion of it, geeky discussion about it that will cater to your interests and indeed interpret the text through the lens you're interested in. Community in general, it's the bit, you just get to talk about your shared interests. It's like, it's like any hobby, isn't it? You know, it recommends say, oh, I found this really good fic. I found this lovely piece of artwork. Oh, great. That's really good. What about this time in canon when, when so-and-so did this? Oh yeah, I thought he did it because of that and that. Um, it's sort of like a book club, but with more, well, in my case, certainly more discussion of gay sex. I don't know, maybe your book club is different. And also... What doesn't tend to happen in book clubs is, in specifically my sort of end of the fanish community, my little bit of it, is you then write or draw for each other. You know, you know so-and-so likes this particular dynamic, this particular character. You know, oh, I could write this for them. And it's kind of gift economy, you know, give to them, give back. Certainly, even if I'm not explicitly making a gift of a fic to somebody else because I've been assigned them in a fic exchange, quite often I go, Ooh, I know someone who'd like this. And I write it with them in mind. That's really nice. Or indeed, coming across something that's just tailored to just your interests in the same way. It's like, it's, you sort of feel, I feel seen. To indicate that, you know, in a negative way, you have been, uh, sort of some part of your personality or soul has been exposed. But it's being the fan community, sort of like, being, I feel seen, but in a good way. Because you're recognised. That is a great answer. <laughs> <laughs> I do my best. And then the opposite, what would you say is the worst part of being in the geek community or being a geek? That's a hard question, actually. I don't know about the worst. There are frustrating things, of course. Like, you know, you're in a fandom and you're the only person who's into a particular character or pairing. Weirdly, in some ways, actually worse than it just being you. Or not being able to find the next installment in a language you can actually read. Or, oh, my eternal favourite, people writing silly news articles about fandom. I suppose, arguably, the... I mean, I, the thing I didn't like, I didn't like it when we moved from LJ to Tumblr. 
but they're mainly things that frustrate me more than will really upset me. Though I, I got my own call-out post. Mm-hmm. My very own. Yeah. Um, I know. Like, I've, like, I've made it. I've arrived in fandom. I've got my call-out post. <laughs> well, that was going to be my um, next kind of follow-up is, have you had any negative experiences? Yeah, is that, yeah. <laughs> um, oh, gosh. I mean, as call-out posts go, it wasn't very impressive. They haven't even looked at my AO3, my archive of my own account. You could tell they haven't looked at any of it because there was no mention of my fic, which is really sad because just look at the amount of non-con I've written. Look, just looked at it, you know, no mm-hmm. reference to it. So that was really shoddy research. And they couldn't have dug very far into my Tumblr archive either because they kept referring to me as being a student at Oxford. And by this point, I'd already left. Mm-hmm. So I just graded a solid five out of 10. But, you know, I, I chose to have fun with it rather than get too upset. And there was a, what I did appreciate was a really lovely outpouring of support from complete strangers for the most part, actually. Some of them are not anonymous, going, I, going, I really like how you're dealing with this. Like, oh. Thank you. So that was a negative experience, the call-up post. Well, um, one of my, my last roundtable, uh, we talked about the politics of shipping. And one of the aspects we talked mm. about was the this rise of purity culture on Tumblr and oh. how there seems to be this group of people that don't seem to realize that fiction is, you know, fiction. fiction. <laughs> yeah. And just yeah. because you may like something in fiction, that doesn't necessarily mean you <laughs> like it in real life. My line is always that I've written the amount of men having it off with other men. I've written is somewhere up around more than the hundred fix mark. Yeah, I've yet to form any desire to have it off with a man in real life. <laughs> if writing more than a hundred fix of men doing each other can't make me want to fuck men, it, there is no way that it's going to make me want to do anything else. Okay, so you uh, to follow that up, you do identify as a lesbian. Yeah. Okay. Speaking of men, <laughs> the whole reason that this series started was because of the noted misogyny in the geek community that has really become popular, uh, unfortunately, over the past you know ten years or so. Have mm. you had any instances of you know either misogyny or being called out as a fake geek girl? Um, no is fine, but if so, you know, kind of go into a little bit of that. Mm. Certainly not of the fake geek girl type. No, that seems to be more of an issue when you're dealing with men and. While I don't doubt there are plenty of men in my fandoms, but I don't share fanish space with them. We lead, we lead separate lives. They, the chaps, there will be a few chaps in my areas of fandom, if you like, on you know the Dreamwoods on the side, but making slash fake maybe. But it is absolutely women dominated, which tends to avoid most of the fake geek girl stuff. If there is gatekeeping impulse, it doesn't go into you know you're not a real fan, ma ma ma. The only misogyny I've had is actually is from other women, mm-hmm. because the whole stuff about you know about these silly women are too impressionable to understand the implications of what they're writing and of course as and as we all know writing fic in which the wrong characters kiss will definitely lead to getting raped oh, of course um, it is basically misogyny that's the close i've got but no i don't have it from men simply because i don't actually deal with men <laughs> in fandom now uh we kind of are in Getting to the final few questions. I would like you to pick one moment in your life that is a big geek out moment and talk about it. Either, you know, meeting someone famous or having a moment at a, like where you meet somebody in real life or, you know, you got an autograph or that, you know, something that just you're like super, this is just, you told everybody about. That's an interesting one because I had to think about this a lot. And this is something I'd say I'm geeky about, but not necessarily fanish. I did nominate Matty Grove for Fixed Exchange once though. But I am very into British folk and folk rock music. Mm-hmm. I was actually introduced to it by doing graded singing exams. The Associated Board of Royal Schools of Music need you to sing an unaccompanied folk song when you do an exam with them. And then I found my parents' CD of the Steel Eye Span album, Common as Crown. Um, Steel Eye Span are the 
British folk rock band of the 70s and 80s. They've been going since 1969. They are, I don't know, folk royalty, or close to it as you can get. And I just fell in love. It was wonderful. Um, and I am specifically geeky about folk music, I think, because not only do I listen to the songs, I read about them, so stuff about child ballads, and the question of how do we classify folk songs. There are certain motifs in folk song that come up again and again that relate to folk tales. About the music itself, um, how do we reconstruct folk music, how do we, you know, historically inspired performance and all that kind of thing. Apart from that, I've been a massive, massive fan of Steve Ice Fan ever since I listened to Commoners Crown more than 10 years ago. And just last month, in fact, I got to see Steel Ice Band live. Yay! 50th anniversary concert tour. Yay! Yeah, 50th. I knew all but one of the songs. And I was the youngest person there by 25 years. <laughs> I kid you not. And I had a wonderful time. My sort of proper geek out moment. Well, there was one bit where I briefly met Maddie Pryor, their lead singer for virtually the whole run, in the interval where she was handing out leaflets. And I sort of beamed at her helplessly. Oh. <laughs> yeah, she smiled back in a very professional manner. This probably happens to her all the time. But um, that and bellowing along with the chorus of All Around My Hat, which is one of their um, greatest hits during their encore. It was just marvellous. And just to assure you, I mean, the tagline of my podcast is everyone's geeky about something. And I do consider <laughs> music. You can, you know, mm. I mean, t- talk about the fangirl mm. experience. You know, fangirls were the ones that discovered the Beatles, for example. Exactly. <laughs> so. Absolutely. And, do you know, I've discovered the Beatles just quite recently. My parents never listened to them. Though my parents don't listen to anything later than about Billy Joel. <laughs> Not on principle, just because they don't think it's very good. I only started listening to the Beatles just last year. They're really good. <laughs> it, th- those people might have known something. Enjoyable. <laughs> Like I've missed out. <laughs> um, and then, like I said, we're winding up. Uh, I always like to ask my geek girls, what advice would you give a newbie entering the, the, the geek world? Depends heavily on what bit they're entering, I suppose. I don't know what's going on in, for instance, comics at the moment. But if they're, getting, <laughs> if they're dipping their toe into my corner, which is specifically female-dominated, predominantly slash-focused fandom, I tell them the point is to have fun. These are fictional characters. They are literary paper dolls. And we're here to enjoy ourselves and be creative. Also, anybody who complains about the way you've arranged your paper dolls on the grounds of morality is not worth listening to. To borrow a wild quote, there is no such thing as a moral or immoral book. Books are well written or they are badly written. And then where do you think the the geek world is headed? I mean, it's really kind of exploded under the scene, uh, partially thanks to the internet. Uh, It's now you know quote unquote cool Mm -hmm. to be geek and and, you know everybody is watching game of thrones it seems (laughs) like that kind of stuff so where do you see it headed in the next you know five to ten years same place i suppose it's always been headed mainstream um i've mixed feelings about that i suppose i think the geek world is going is already going much more mainstream than it currently is there used to be a lot of underground you know but all that stuff about you know people sending cease and desist letters to certain fanfic archives and the risk of being outed as a fanfic writer some of it still, if you're in a sensitive profession. I mean, I'm a teacher. And famously, a couple of years ago, there was a teacher in America who got doxxed by people in fandom. And that was a wake of call, I think. But generally, I think fandom is going much more mainstream, helped by the success of stuff like Harry Potter, which really capitalises on its fandom, and also by stuff like the MCU, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and to an extent DC as well. These characters normally you just have known through comics, if you engage with comics, now, very ordinary people come to see them because, oh, it's the new action blockbuster. Oh, I'll take, I'll take my eight-year-old to see it because he'll like it. He likes it when things go shooty-shooty. <laughs> I also like it when things go shooty-shooty. It's very satisfying. Same with the Game of Thrones, actually, which I don't watch yet because I know that if I watch it, I'm going to have to read the books. 
because I'm a completionist like that and I don't have spare six months. And again, it's not quite fanish engagement in the same... They, they don't need to engage in fandom in the same way. It doesn't have to go totally mainstream, but there is much more mainstream awareness in terms of, as I said, journalist writing, sometimes silly, sometimes not so silly, pieces about fandom in moderately mainstream, well-respected publications. It's a lot less underground. And then uh, should people want to connect with you, uh, where can they find you? They can find me on Tumblr or on Dreamwidth. Um, and in both cases, I've got the username that I always use. I've used ever since I got into fandom, it, which is Cerberusia, which is that's Cerberus with an I-A on the end, just like three-headed dog. C-E-R-B-E-R-U-S-I-A. Okay, and then I try and ask everybody I interview, the name of my podcast, as you know, is Geek Out with Angie Fiedler-Sutton. I try and ask everybody I interview, what are you currently geeking out about and why? What, name me something that you're specific, currently just... Hmm. Really into. So excited that you've been telling everybody about. <laughs> and if so, what about it draws you? Currently, um, again, something I'm really geeky about at the moment is not to do with fandom again. It's antique Japanese woodblock prints. Ukiyo-e. I love these things. They were the popular art of the time. And now, of course, they're collector's items. You can get some of them very, very cheap and some of them for eye-watering sums of money, depending on artist, condition and other things. But they are so fascinating. And they're so lovely because... I say I'm 25, not quite fresh out of uni, but close. And I'm in a position where I can, I can buy art. I can, you know, I'm an adult. I can buy art. I can collect art. And that's what I'm doing. But I'm so excited about them because of the particular period. So I'm focusing on particularly Meiji period. So artists like Chikanobu, who did loads and loads and loads of stuff. And the changes in what you can portray. So back in the earlier period, of the Edo period, you can't portray the emperor. They put out the shogunate, say... Well, it's not the shogunate, but um, can't portray the emperor. Sorry, the shogunate say you can't portray the shogun. Okay, fine. You can't portray the shogun, then you can't. Like, various things you can't portray, various rules and regulations. But then you get to the Meiji period, Meiji restoration of the emperor, and suddenly the Meiji emperor finds it very useful to kind of portray his power through public propaganda. And one of the ways it ends up happening is through these woodblock prints. And so you can portray the emperor in woodblock prints. And so you have all these wonderful prints of the Meiji Emperor and Empress doing things, particularly quite often Western things. There's a great one of them, by Chikanabu, of them going to admire a train, like the new train, the first train in Japan um, in the, at the end of the 1800s. And there's, you know, what we would have as photos of. No, it's a big popular art print of an art style designed back 200 years ago. It's fascinating stuff. Yes. What about it fascinates you? The art part of it, the Japan part of it. I went to Japan at Easter, finally, after wanting to go for 10 years and had a wonderful, wonderful time. It's the art, the, like, the Japan connection, Japan history connection. I'm really interested in Japanese history. Certain bits of it, or not all bits of it, but the modernization and westernization of Japan in the Meiji period is, um, is one of my particular areas of interest. Being able to appreciate the art, something I learned at university when I did art and archaeology as part of my degree, gave me a whole new vocabulary to talk about it and also a way of seeing, a way of looking at art in order to, to really appreciate it. It's fascinating to be able to compare the styles of art, to be able, be able to look at the line work and admire it as a piece of art. It's also old, and of course, as we know as a classicist, I like old things. And now, it's time for Angie Geeks Out. I first bought the book Good Omens in 2008 at a used bookstore to boot. I know I was familiar with Neil Gaiman by then, but can't remember if I had ventured into Terry Pratchett's Discworld yet. I do know I had heard about the book prior, and it sounded right up my alley. Considering I read it in a couple of days, 
It definitely shot up to the top of my favorite books, and I would recommend it to anyone I know who loved British humor as well as genre books. It's the funniest book about the end of the world you'll come across. If you're not familiar with the book, it's the story of the end of the world. The demon Crowley and the angel Azraphale team up to try and stop the apocalypse through influencing the Antichrist once he's born. It doesn't go exactly as planned. When BBC Radio did a radio adaptation in 2017, I ate it up with a spoon. The cast was tight, and the show even had cameos by Gaiman and Pratchett themselves. So, I was one of the people who gave a tentative squee when I first heard that Amazon was producing a short series based on the book. That Gaiman would be involved as a writer and showrunner helped ease many of the concerns I had about adapting the book to the screen, and as the cast started to be announced, my excitement grew. The show dropped on May 31st, 2019, and I ended up catching it the following week, and inhaled the entire series in two days. As I posted on Facebook, while it's not perfect, it was a great adaptation. While I'll always love David Tennant, especially the way he sashays through the part of Crowley, Michael Sheen steals the damn show as Azraphale. He is a joy to watch, giving the performance such subtle nuances that my eyes are constantly drawn to all the little things he does. His acting style reminds me a lot of what I like about Martin Freeman, and he's now been added to my list of actors to keep an eye out for. This has only been enhanced by seeing some of his interactions with fans on Twitter. From assuring a carer from someone with Alzheimer's to tell her that she is loved, to telling someone who got mad at him for sharing all of the lovely fan art, he said, and I quote, I will unashamedly and unapologetically celebrate the joy and warmth and the creativity of a community of people sharing something positive and beautiful and connective, and if you don't like it, you're most welcome to very fuck off. While I feel the phrase has been overused to the point of uselessness, this is one of the rare times I feel the meme of someone being pure and soft is an apt description. If you don't get Amazon and won't be able to catch it on BBC2 when it broadcasts there, Amazon does have it available for pre-order on DVD and Blu-ray. If you like the book, I think you'll like the series. And that's a wrap for this episode. My thanks to Grace, a.k.a. Cerberisia, for letting me interview her twice. Thanks also to Victoria Malay for her mid-show plug. You can hear her interview in episode 39, where we talk about the podcast she co-hosts, Your Biggest Fangirl. Next up, back in February, I had the chance to interview Alyssa Stern while we were both attending Gallifrey One. If you know her name at all, it's as the creator of the YouTube series Dr. Puppet. We talk about how she came up with the idea, why she's ending it, and her plans for the future. Until next time, stay geeky! Thanks for listening to Geek Out with Angie Fiedler Sutton. The theme song is Schoolyard Haze by Yari Picknickin, available via the Free Music Archive. More information about the podcast is available on my website, angiefsutton.com. <laughs>